live from Earth, it's Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Stony Brook University and the Flatiron Institute in New York City. And for the next half hour, your agent to the stars. We've got an amazing show for you today where we have a very special guest that I'm very very, very excited to introduce, especially we were supposed to have a couple, an episode a couple weeks ago. Life got a little bit crazy, but it was everything's fine now. If you've been following me on social media, you know what's going on. But everything's cool now. Everyone's happy. Everyone is healthy. Everyone is safe. And now we get to do a show and we get to talk about spines and we get to talk about space and we get to have a good time. Most importantly, we get to eat a little bit of cheese at the end. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to Torrance, California, Austin, Texas, Washington, D.C., and more. But I didn't write the Portsmouth, England. There we go. I didn't write them down this time. So I'm just scrolling through the chat. Howell, New Jersey, London, U.K., Palisade, Alabama, and more. Check out spaceradioshow.com for all the links for the podcast, for the live stream location. No fifth dimension there. Space kids are asking, there's no rant today. Sorry, this is not Space Rant Radio this week. Instead of a special guest, maybe she's maybe she'll rant. That'll be pretty fun. Speaking of my guest, this is this is gonna be a blast. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Joining us today, we have Dr. Jesse Christensen. She's an astrophysicist with the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute at Caltech, where she searches for, characterizes, and catalogs planets orbiting other stars. In 2018, she was awarded the NASA Exceptional Engineering Achievement Medal for her role with the successful NASA Kepler mission which discovered thousands of exoplanets and revealed that rocky planets are common throughout the galaxy. She now works on the NASA Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS, to find and study the nearest planetary systems to Earth, systems that will be perfect for further study with the next generation of ground and space-based telescopes. Dr. Christensen, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Can I tell a very short story about Space Cadets? Do it. Like, just, you know what? If you just want to chat for like 20 minutes and not even take a question, that's fine. I want. I just want to start with this little anecdote. So Space Cadets was the name of my slow pitch recreational adult softball team when I was at NASA Ames working on the Kepler mission. So NASA Ames is, you know, there's all NASA there, but it's actually a federal, a naval federal airfield as well. Uh, so there's like active military uh, as well as NASA scientists. So this, this slow pitch recreational adult league we have is hilarious because it's a whole bunch of scientists and engineers and like people in procurement and HR and then Navy men uh, who are just like, um, so normally the scientist teams are just playing each other. Our team was the space cadets. And then there were like the, you know, the ultraviolet catastrophes and the infrared, this is that yes. the infrared socks. That's what it was. The infrared socks. Um, and uh, so, but very occasionally we would come up against one of the Navy teams. Um, and it and they'd be called like the gunslingers or jet fumes. Uh, and you know, in kids leagues, in kids leagues, they have a mercy rule in adult mm, leagues. They don't have a not mercy so much. rule. They, and, and the funny part was, so we'd be like, okay, we're playing these guys today and they would cheer every run and like steal every base. And they were so excited and they'd be up like 40 nil and they'd be <laughs> cheering the 41st run as much as the first run. And we'd just be like, well, this might as well happen today. 
Uh, yeah, but I really, really loved it. I played with him for four years. I got my commemorative bat when I left. That was the Space Cadets. Nice. The Space Cadets. That's so perfect. What a what a beautiful coincidence. And I'm sorry about all your losses to the Navy teams. But I, uh, the most important thing is you had fun. <laughs> How did you go from slow pitch adult baseball to exoplanets? <laughs> um, I It was kind of the other way. So I, I worked on Kepler when I joined NASA Ames and I was trying to make friends. Um, and so I'm from Australia. I don't know if your listeners can tell my accent anymore because I've been here for a while now. I'm a huge cricket fan. I grew up on cricket. I love cricket. Uh, and then when I moved to America, one of my very first discoveries was you guys don't really cricket. There's just not a lot of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's very hard to find. Um, but you do have a different sport that has innings and bats and bowls and runs and catches and outs. It's called baseball. Uh, so I channeled all of my cricket fandom and passion into baseball. Um, so I'm a big baseball fan now. I was actually just, I still have the like angels page open cause they are starting to sell tickets for the season now that things are going to open up in California, which is a bit exciting. Um, so yes, I'm a big baseball fan now. So when I was trying to make friends at NASA Ames, they were like, Hey, we have this, this slow pitch league. And I'm like, all right, I like the sound of slow. <laughs> I'm not good at ball sports of any kind, but I'll, I'll give it a go. Uh, by the end of the fourth season, I could semi-regularly hit the ball. Hey, you know what? I mean, that's what professional baseball is. is if you get it like one out of three times semi-regularly. Yeah, see, my, average, like was, my average was the same as like, you know, Big Poppy or something. Exactly, exactly. So you're you so you gave up a career in professional American baseball to study exoplanets. How how noble of you. That's right. This is fascinating. What 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 makes exoplanets so interesting to you? Uh to me, I one of the reasons I love exoplanets is because I grew up loving amateur astronomy. I you know, I grew up out in the country in Australia. And the planets, like when you're an amateur astronomer, the planets are some of the coolest things. The first things you see in the sky, you can see them with the naked eye. They move around. They're interesting colors compared to the background. Then you get your first binoculars or your first telescope and they have features. They have stripes and moons and rings and it's amazing. And they're so tangible, right? You can just see them right there. Um, But when I was a kid, there weren't any exoplanets. We didn't know about planets around other worlds yet. Um, And it was when I was, you know, going to university in Australia and starting grad school that this really started to become a thing. People were discovering these worlds. Um, So for me, it was was starting the connection back to something really tangible. Like a lot of astronomy is you know, simulating how black holes form and simulating the evolution of galaxies. And, and those are all really cool, but they're so distant from like everyday life. Whereas I feel like planets are just that much closer because you could go out tonight and see a planet. Um, so for me, I loved the, the physical tangibility of the idea of exoplanets. I could picture them. I could imagine them. Um, and then also this, uh, I love that we can discover things like, you know, there's this classic quote, we're born too late to explore the earth, but too early to explore space. This generation where this generation mm-hmm, is kind of stuck mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, and I don't feel that way because I get to find exoplanets. I get to find yeah. brand new planets around other stars. Like I get to explore space and discover new worlds. So I really love the thrill of discovery. And I really love the fact that it's something that I can, I feel so connected to as a physical thing. So, um, <sighs> Exoplanets are awesome. We talk about exoplanets all the time on this show. What are you, in the past 10 years, we've gone from like 10 exoplanets to 10,000. And I'm using typical astronomy uh, approximations, orders of magnitude here. Um, Mm -hmm. What 
what technology, how did we go from 10 to 10,000 exoplanets in, in less than a generation? Sure. So, I mean, getting to space was one of the really big things. Um, so planets are very small compared to stars. Um, so the signal that they induce on their stars, either by pulling on them gravitationally or blocking some of the light if they're orbiting around, um, are tiny um, and often are dwarfed by the things that happen between us and the star, which is largely the atmosphere. Uh, it's fantastic that we have an atmosphere. I love breathing. Breathing's great. Um, but trying to see through it with the telescope that's trying to measure something to parts per million having something in between that's just like messing about and changing temperature and changing humidity and there's wind and there's clouds and the sun comes up occasionally that's kind of annoying if you're an astronomer and then it goes down again um so in many many ways earth interferes with us finding planets from the ground but going to space you can just stare as long as you want as long as the fuel will let you you don't have the atmosphere changing. Uh, if you're in the right kind of orbit, you don't have much temperature changing or radiation changing or light changing. What you want is just the most stable environment possible. So then you can just stare and look for planets. That's really what, to survey many, many hundreds of thousands of stars and to do this exercise that you're talking about, finding large quantities of planets in the thousands, you need a big survey that's very precise. Um, and that was really what Kepler contributed to the field. It was like space-based telescope. Uh, you know, it rode on the heels of successful space-based missions before it, like Corot was a French um, CNSF, CNES mission, and most was a Canadian mission. Both of them got, you know, light curves of, of stars looking for planets. But Kepler was able to like really commercialize that and be like, let's do it by the thousands uh, and be really successful. It was, and Kepler was amazingly successful delivering this massive treasure trove <laughs> of planets. In that catalog, like, like, like what? Do, oh, let's uh, let's ask, uh, what is what does your day to day look like with these space based exoplanet missions? Right, I'm kind of in the exciting phase of a paper right now, uh, so I get to talk to you guys a little bit about that. Um, yes. So when when Kepler died, uh, when Kepler's reaction wheels broke, it wasn't able to keep pointing at the original set of stars anymore. That was back in 2013. But we were able to like have a zombie Kepler mission where this undead spacecraft looked at a few different fields in the sky, and that's called the K2 mission. Um, and so Kepler came along, and then TESS came along. Everyone's really excited about TESS. K2 is like the, the the ignored stepchild, this like little data set that, you know, wasn't perfect, but it wasn't nothing and it exists. And, you know, it's kind of like a bit of a final gift from Kepler. Um, but a lot of people just went on to TESS because TESS is, you know, looking at all these amazingly bright stars in the whole sky. TESS is new survey. and shiny. Exactly. Um, but K2 is kind of this like unexplored data set. Uh, so I was lucky enough a few years ago to get a big grant from NASA to really plumb this. Um, so we have a catalog paper that's coming out very soon, which has something like 800 new planet candidates in it from K2. Wow. Uh, and that's being led by my student, John Zink. Uh, actually, I shouldn't say student anymore. Just a week ago, he defended his thesis. He is now Dr. Zink. Um, yes, it's very cool. Uh, and so he led that paper. So I'm leading the follow-up paper so the way it works with exoplanets is often you see a signal and you think it's a planet. You're pretty sure it's a planet, but you don't know it's a planet. Uh, so and what does the signal to... look like? So what we are looking for is transit signals. So that's when the planet is lined up just right. So it blocks some of the light. So the planet's going around the star, but my zoom background is going to make this harder than it should be and block some of the light. So we don't actually get to resolve that. We don't get to see a planet passing in front of the star. But if we just measure the starlight over and over and over again, we'll see it dip sometimes. It gets a little bit dimmer and then gets brighter again. And that's because something passed in front. Um, so what we have are hundreds of thousands of light curves and we look for these dips. 
Um, so sometimes you see really promising dips and you're like, hooray. Um, but the problem is they could be caused by other things. So stars um, have spots, for instance, that also cause changes in brightness. Um, they have, there are two stars, they're binary systems that go around each other. We have one star pass in front of the other star and you can see similar dips. Um, and then there's also just the spacecraft just occasionally likes to mess with us and be like, oh, I'm just going to change focus for a second. And then the light changes and you thought you saw a dip and you didn't. Um, all of these have happened to me. <laughs> uh, so what we have to do is go and get more data. So usually we're using ground-based telescopes then to get a slightly different type of measurement. So for instance, we use Palomar here in California, a big five meter telescope. Um, it has a adaptive optics imager. So what that's trying to do, adaptive optics is trying to correct for that atmosphere that I was complaining about before. Uh, so the atmosphere is gonna blur out your star uh, and make it this big fat thing on the sky. Um, but that's all being caused by the atmosphere because the star itself is a point source. The star itself is, you know, hundreds of hundreds to thousands of light years away. Um, it's being all spread out by the atmosphere. So what the adaptive optics tries to do is to correct for that. It's got like a, this deformable mirror, which is actually trying to mirror the wave front changes, the, the, the changes that the atmosphere is doing to the light and kind of correct for them in real time. It's wild to watch. Um, there's many, many tiny actuators. They're all like, Nyee! and you know, you're trying to get them to go as fast as possible because you're trying to keep up with the atmosphere. So you have this telescope operator who's got it going at like 30 hertz and you're like, can we try 60? And they'll try. Um, but the point is you want to narrow that down and see if there's any other stars. Is it really a single star or is it two stars very, very close together that from without this correction just get blurred together and look like a single star? So that's important because it, lots of stars are actually in binaries. Uh, three out of every two stars is in a binary as the saying goes. Um, so we need to find out whether it's a single star or not. If it's not a single star, that means it's, it's less likely to be a planet. And more importantly, we don't know which star the signal's around. So that makes it harder for us to say what kind of planet it is if it's a planet. Um, we also get, we also get um, spectra using Keck. Um, so Keck is the big telescopes in Hawaii. They have very high resolution spectrographs on it. So that's where you're getting the light from the star and splitting it out a lot in wavelength. Uh, and that's one way to really tell a star really well. It'll tell you its temperature, its size, its surface gravity, how strong the pull is at the surface, what kind of star it is basically. Um, so once you have all of that information, then you can be like, okay, we're pretty sure it's a planet. So that's the paper I'm writing right now. And so far of the like 800, uh, we've confirmed or validated, we say at least 16 brand new systems, uh, including two multi-planet systems, which is always exciting. Uh, the stars yeah. have got multiple planets going around them. Um, so that paper is being written right now. So my day-to-day -day right now is literally going through these 800 candidates and working out what follow-up we need, writing proposals, getting those data, checking them, uh, is there one star or two, and then like giving them the big check mark. I get, I say check mark, I'm literally turning rows in a Google spreadsheet cyan. If it's cyan, mm -hmm, it's good. Mm -hmm. that's, nice. that's what I'm doing day-to-day -day now. That's what's, uh, it's surprising how much science is like some sort of Google spreadsheet that just gets different colored and then somehow. Yep. So uh, many different rows. You, know, you get a <laughs> And then you're like, wait, I need it. an, I need an orange one to show that they're multi-planets and I need yellow okay. to show that it's not quite validated. A very, very complicated. You need a, a legend in there. Yeah. You and you have and you have different shades because if it's sky blue versus aqua blue, it exactly. tells you about the mass I have and three radius different stuff. greens on this spreadsheet. Three, I knew it. Kidding. Three different greens. What are your three greens? Um, how bright the star is. The darkest green ah. are the brightest stars, so they're the easiest to follow up. And then I have a medium medium green, which is like the we could try and do this, but it would cost a lot of telescope time. And then the faint green is this would be tough. I think Don't this waste would your be. Time. Yeah, exactly. Like we'd spend four hours on this to get one thing and that would be 
expensive because you know you're applying for time on these huge telescopes like one night at a time like please give me one night this semester so you don't really want to spend oops, sorry four hours of that on one target so that's my three shades of green or how 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 three good a target it is for follow-up three shades of green that's the follow-up series to 50 shades of gray that's all has a lot more math in it yes <laughs> much more boring so, i'm sorry well, <laughs> or fascinating if you're into yeah, it depends yeah. on what you're into i'm not gonna judge exactly now Which i think is the whole point of the shades of gray it depends what you're into exactly um when does the naming come in? A space cadet CDP is asking, who gets to name the exoplanets? Can Ooh. I name an exoplanet? Do you, are you the one naming the exoplanets? What's going on with the names? Sometimes it's me. Uh, so if it's a Kepler, <gasps> Which ones have you a, named? So if it's a Kepler planet or a K2 planet, I get to name it. Um, because I am the keeper. So one of the things Paul was mentioning earlier, you know, I'm at the NASA Exoplanet Science Institute. And one of the things I do is lead the team of scientists who maintain the exoplanet archive. NASA has this exoplanet archive where we keep track of all of the planets that we found, what their properties are, where they are, what stars they orbit. Um, and so uh, we were also the official archive for Kepler, for the NASA Kepler mission, and then subsequently the K2 mission. So someone needs to be in charge of assigning the numbers. The names are very boring. I'm pretty sure I ranted about this before on this show um the names are just kepler one two three four and then b c d so b is the first planet you find c is the second planet you find d is the third planet you find and then the number is just the number of the system in order so kepler one two three four gets discovered and published and then i call it kepler one two three four then the next paper that gets written and published they come to me and they say jesse what's this one and i say that's kepler one two three five uh and i and i assign the numbers out so, you know, I make it sound really cool that I get to name them. I really just maintain an integer uh, that I increment by one uh, every time a new paper is published. But feel free. This is a very safe space here if you want to divulge your secret. Is there a hidden field in that database where you are putting your own names in there so that future generations will, like, see that that field instead of the official one. Some scientist just comes in and is like, Jesse's world, Christensen's world. Like, is that, is it, is that true? (laughs) So we don't have an official field, but many astronomers do have nicknames for the planets (gasps) that they have found. I can probably share some of them. Um, Please share all of them. Uh, the first water world that got found. So GJ 1214 B, which was found by some of my collaborators at Harvard, um, uh, is called Kevin. After Kevin Costner, Costner, yes, Waterworld. I knew it. Love so that it. got that nickname. Um, the first Mercury-sized planet that was ever found is nicknamed Freddy. Nice. Uh, so I it's love that this. kind of. I like the nicknames. Kind of I like level. the nicknames better. Yeah, the nicknames are fun. So one of the very first planets I published, if the if the star already has a catalog name that's in popular use, so brighter stars have many names, right? Like mm-hmm. if any of your audience are amateur astronomers, there are many names like HD names and HIP names and Tycho names. And then just the, the normal, like, you know, AB Doradus. And then, you know, then they have their actual common names like Arcturus and stuff. Anyway, mm-hmm. a star can have a whole bunch of names. Um, if it has a name in common usage, you use that star name and then you put B, C, D on the end. Um, so like Fomalhaut has had a planet around it and then the planet got refuted, but it was Fomalhaut B. Uh, so it didn't get like a number or anything. The point of which is to say one of the first papers I published uh, was around HD 3167. So it's HD 3167D is the planet I discovered because there was already a B and a C. 
Um, but my son's initials are HD. Uh, so it's HD3167, but in my mind, it's Hugo David because it's my son's name. Yes. It, and it so really is. We have that's these ways. In the secret database field. Exactly. That you maintain. Got it. Yep. I'm glad we've confirmed that there is a secret Illuminati name uh, for every exoplanet out there and that you are in charge of it. What? Here's another good question from the Space Cadets. This is from both Tom Bach and James Hapgood. Uh, what's the furthest that we've discovered an exoplanet? And then as TESS continues to operate, this new replacement for Kepler, uh, what's the furthest possible that you imagine we might find an exoplanet? Oh, really good questions. So the furthest one we found so far, I'm going to apologize. I'm not going to remember the full telephone number because it's a microlensing planet. Microlensing planets have even worse names than the planets I've described so far. So they're like Ogle, which is the name of the collaboration that found it. Um, 2019, like the year that it was found. BLG for the bulge because microlensing are usually towards the surveys towards the bulge. And then the number of the event that they found. So like 051 and then there's an L on the end, and I've never really understood, but they have an L on the end. So you've got like Ogle 2019 BLG 091 L. Um, anyway, so there's one of those that's 26,000 light years away, and it's towards the center of the galaxy. And we're about 30,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. So it's like almost 90% right of the it's way downtown. in the middle of the galaxy. Yeah. Um, microlensing um, is a different technique, and that relies on general relativity. It relies on the fact that mass warps space-time. So when you look towards a very dense field of stars, like the center of our galaxy is a very dense field of stars. If something massive comes between you and that screen of stars, like you have a star in the foreground, it acts like a magnifying glass on the stars in the back because it, it lenses the light. It's called microlensing. It lenses that background light towards us. So what we see, we're just staring at these background stars and suddenly one of the stars will get very bright like all, many magnitudes brighter. This is like a tiny effect, like transits. Microlensing events are magnitudes. They change by, you know, a factor of 10 in flux. Um, so you see this brightening event and then this dimming event. It's very symmetrical. It's got a very predictable shape from general relativity. Sometimes you'll see this dip and then there'll be a little boop. That's a planet around that star that's going between us and the background screen of stars. Um, so that's how we discover these very, very distant planets, because we're actually looking at like these giant stars in the center of the galaxy. We're not actually ever seeing the planet or the star. There's this classic quote from Deborah Fisher, who says like microlensing planets are planets you can't see around stars you can't see. Because uh, you're seeing neither the star nor the planet. You're watching the you background just see the star. Yeah, exactly. You're just watching the effect on the background star. Um, so uh, yes, 26,000 light years is the furthest away one we found. TESS is actually not looking for faraway stars. The whole point of TESS is looking for nearby stars. Um, TESS is doing a shallow all-sky survey. So where Kepler did a narrow deep survey, like one patch of the sky went a few thousand light years deep, TESS is doing the whole sky, but much brighter stars, so much more shallow, really, um, hundreds to a thousand light years. So it's not going to help push that boundary. But NASA does have a mission coming up called Roman, the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. And it will do a microlensing survey from space. Uh, one of the, it's going to go to space and spend 500 days looking at the center of the galaxy for these microlensing events. So it will likely help us beat that record of 26,000 light years and get us closer to the center of the galaxy. 
Got it. Got it. So lots, lots of exoplanets. We've got another question here. I, I had my own questions that I was thinking of, but the Space Cadet ones are so much better. We've got uh, Procyon MS, MFC on Twitch. Is it still true that most of the exoplanets we've systems we've found are quite odd, like having giant planets close to the star? Um, how unique is our solar system given what we've observed so far in exoplanet systems? Yeah, no, that's something that we're really thinking hard about right now. So we have not found a true solar system analog yet. But to be fair, our detection techniques haven't actually been sensitive enough. Um, Apologies if you hear the helicopter. We have the transit method that I talked about, which is sensitive to close-in planets out to about where Earth is. We have microlensing, which is sensitive to things around Earth and out to, say, Jupiter. And then we have direct imaging, which is where you're actually literally trying to block out the light from the star and look around for planets, like the adaptive optics that I talked about. You're just trying to narrow in on the star and look for planets. That's sensitive to very far out techniques. And so far, it's been very hard to like paste all of those together to get this full picture of planets. It does seem like, given what we found, that our solar system, if not rare, is not the most common kind of system. So what we found, one of the things we found so far is that super-Earths seem like the most common kind of planet. So that's something between the size of Earth and Neptune. Neptune is about four times the radius of Earth. Uh, and in our solar system, there's nothing in that size range. And it seems like with, with missions like Kepler and now TESS, that's the most common kind of planet we find when we look out there. They're everywhere. Like most stars have something super-Earth or Neptune size, up to Neptune size around them. Uh, which is then we start to ask, well, why don't we have one? You know, if they're so common, we have eight planets. Why don't we have one of the most common kind of planet, which is already interesting. Um, So I would say we're kind of just getting to the point where we're talking about how common architectures are. So we've been working a lot on individual planets. How common is this kind of planet or this kind of planet or this kind of planet? We're just now getting to the point where we can start to say, how common is this kind of system where you have like inner rocky planets and outer giants or all giants or all little planets? Got it, got it. Are these super-Earths rocky or gassy? That's the question. That is the exact question, Paul. We are trying to work that out because we don't know how big a rock can get before it's going to like run away and accrete a whole bunch of gas and volatiles and turn into a giant of some kind, an ice giant or a gas giant. We suspect it's somewhere like one and a half to 1.6 times the size of the Earth. Like we think you can get a pretty big rock without accreting too much atmosphere. Um, but we're, that's actually something we're still testing. And that is the actual point of TESS. TESS's primary goal is to measure the masses of 50 planets between the size of Earth and Neptune. So we can do this exact exercise, map out the densities and say, like, where's the transition? Is there an overlap? What governs the overlap? Is it the type of star? Is it the age? Is it, you know, how metal rich the original protoplanetary disk was? There's so many different things that could govern when something stops being a super Earth and starts being a mini Neptune. This is exactly what we're doing. All right. That's exciting. I love it when I randomly ask questions that turn out to be cutting edge research. Uh, One last question from the space cadets. We've been talking about exoplanets. Hit me up with some exomoons. What's going on there? Oh, yes. So this has been a a passion project for uh, a number of astronomers, especially since Kepler launched, is to find exomoons. So at the moment... We still only have one candidate that's been published, uh, which is Kepler 1625bi. So now you have Kepler 1625b. Now you all understand where that name come from. Right. Was I? I is the first moon around the planet B around the star Kepler 1625. Is it like Roman numeral I? Yeah, it's like a little I. Oh, yes, the little I. 
I know. Well, because B, because like letters that. were already used and numbers were already used, so now we're at little Roman numerals. You can blame David Pipping, and if you haven't had him on your show, get him on your show, and he'll tell you all about it. I just actually had lunch with him like two weeks ago, and so next time I have lunch with you him, you can blame him. I I'm like, stop it, David, and he'll do it. <laughs> so yes, that's our best. Me. That's our best prospect so far. That and. The reason I say prospect is what we see in the Kepler data is a Jupiter-sized planet. So we see the dip caused by a Jupiter-sized planet. And they're usually very symmetrical because it's just a circle going in front of a circle. It's just a geometry problem to create that shape of that dip. But the dip has some shoulder issues where the edge of the dip is kind of crunched down a bit, uh, which is something you'd expect to see if there was like a second body transiting with that first body. Uh, and then when we see the next transit, the, the crunch is on the other side, the other shoulder is a bit lower. So if there was motion, if there was like binary motion of those two objects, you might expect that sometimes the moon is leading and sometimes the planet is leading. The problem is it's very low signal to noise. Like it, the, the crunch could just as easily be the spacecraft decided that this was the moment it was going to, you know, change focus slightly. Which right, glitch out. Uh, yep. Right. So then they went and got Hubble data and the Hubble data showed a crunch, but it was low signal to noise. And it's like, Oh, mm. so close. Um, and then another team came along and reanalyzed the Hubble data because it was publicly available. And they were like, well, we don't see a crunch. We, we don't, we see symmetry. Uh -oh. um, so it's still, it's still an active area of research right now. Is this real? Is this moon real? Um, part, if it is real, it's like a Neptune sized moon around a Jupiter sized planet. So oh, it would be dang. more like a binary planet system, but that would be a monster moon. It would be. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe the I stands for imaginary because he's just making, all these people are just making it up. Well, at the moment it's imaginary because it hasn't been confirmed. Right. Um, unfortunately, we're almost out of time. Before we go, my very last question for you. This has been such a fun interview. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot. I hope the space cadets have learned a lot. Now we need to learn what is your favorite kind of cheese? My favorite kind of cheese is Comte. Comte, it's, a, it's like a, it's like a hard, Bonjour. hard, strong flavored Gruyere cheese. It's very good. Yeah, uh, it's always the it first is. thing I look for at a cheese store. Excellent, excellent choice. One of my favorite cheeses. That I knew you'd be an awesome person. You can uh -huh. tell a person by the by the kind of cheese that they. I'm like. really curious what kind of cheese choice you would have like dissed me for. Oh. um... You know what? Actually, that was just, it doesn't matter what people say. I tell, I tell every single person. Like if I'm out here, like Pepper cheese. Jack, man, Pepper Jack's where it hey, is. Hey, you, you know what? Like, Pepper Jack incredible. has a place in my life. Pepper Jack has a place in my life, mostly in my stomach, but it's, it definitely has a place. <laughs> Thank don't you send me hate so mail much. about Pepper Jack. <laughs> don't send any hate mail about Pepper Jack. Pepper Jack's awesome. It's just Monterey Jack with some peppers in it. It's like it's 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 monterey jack that like got a little edgy in life that's that's not that's all it is how can people follow you find out more about you learn more uh keep up with all your amazing research um mostly you can follow me on twitter at aussie astronomer without the e in aussie because there's too many characters so a-u-s-s-i astronomer that's where i am i tweet all the time you can learn lots more about exoplanets and lots more about me just complaining about the state of the field of astronomy in general that's where i ran i ran oh, on yeah no i i'm right i wrote a whole book about it it'll be out in uh in in uh the fall i think it'll be out fall or spring yay all right so so we should tweet at each other about complaining about stuff yes and cheese 100%. thank you so much for coming on the show thank it was you. a delight to have you and thank you to all the space cadets 
Now thank I get you, to think about space cadets. Say thank you via me. They, they, you can't hear them, but they're they're saying you can't hear their thunderous applause, but it's there. All right. Oh yeah, bask in it, bask in it. I'll leave you alone to bask in it. Oh, that right. was Thanks, a really fun interview. Now, unfortunately, since we are almost out of time, I'm going to eat some cheese. Thanks to Dom's Cheese Shop, D-O-M-S-Cheese.com, for today's cheese. My good friends who brought me, that is an interesting smell. They brought me a red witch. That's right, a red witch. This is a Swiss cheese, as in a cheese made in Switzerland. And the rind is packed with paprika. (gasps) So it's two amazing things at once. Cheese and paprika. It smells super funky. Look at that. You can see that all that paprika on. Like it smells like it's ready to party. And so am I. But it looks amazing. As I eat this cheese, I can tell you that if you if you like space radio, if you want to keep it going, really do appreciate it. You go to patreon.com slash PM Sutter. It's patreon.com slash PM Sutter. And you make a little monthly contribution like a dollar or ten dollars or a hundred dollars, whatever you want. And those contributions keep all of my education and outreach activities going, include space radio, ask a spaceman on YouTube, uh, the podcast versions of everything, uh, so much cool stuff. That's patreon.com slash PM. So you can also drop a super chat right in the live stream. And Red Witch, I don't know a lot about it, except it's Swiss cheese and it's packed in paprika. I mean, what else do you need to know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's not Greenwich. It's not Greenwich. Wow. It's buttery. It's smooth. Tiny bit of nuttiness. Creamy. And then you get that paprika. Oh, it's like it's like someone from Switzerland met and fell in love with someone from Hungary. And they had a little baby. And the baby tasted like cheese and paprika. I don't know where I'm going with that metaphor. I'm just lost in this cheese. Thank you so much. For joining me on this voyage of space radio once again i'm paul sutter thank you to launchpad astronomy for the super chat really do appreciate it thank you nancy graziano for producing the show getting our wonderful guest dr jesse christensen on the show tonight uh i should be back next week life has gotten a little bit insane for various reasons, uh, but I shouldn't be back next week i hope i'm back next week and we've got more guests lined up thank you to nancy I go to spaceradioshow.com for more info, all the live stream locations, uh, the archive, everything. And of course, sp- thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing, but this cheese is not. Who uh, aren't all mine. <laughs>